Welcome back to our study of the household code text where we're looking at the three estates and what the scriptures have to say about those. We are uh, going to be looking at 1 Peter today and then if time permits into the small catechism. Hopefully you brought yours. If not, make sure you have it for next week. And then ultimately we're going to conclude with Romans 13 and take a look at that and have a little bit more of a nuanced discussion on the basis of what, uh, what we owe government and what we owe government when government steps outside of the godly bounds that have been set for it. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, for the sake of it, let's open to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to do a little bit of a run-up here, but I think you'll see why. These things tie together and have to do with the biblical description and prescription of our identity in Christ. So, in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you take a look at verse 4, we are a little bit in the middle of the argument. That's fine. The alternative would be to go much earlier. At verse 4, you can say, As you come to him, Peter writes, namely to the Lord, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pause here and go through what Peter is laying before us. As you come to him, to the Lord, a living stone, that's a description of Christ himself, rejected by men, as indeed it was man who put Christ to death on the cross, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones. So, the Christian baptized into Christ is like Christ, like a living stone, are being built up as a spiritual house, imagery here of the new temple, and to be a holy priesthood. Now, if you've heard the phrase priesthood of all believers, that phrase, it may surprise you to learn, is found nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the church fathers, nowhere in the Lutheran confessions. Where did it come from? I would argue the language itself probably came from a not good place. 
Because generally, priesthood of believers works like this. I know what the priesthood is. That's the guy up there wearing the vestments who preaches and delivers the sacraments. Therefore, the priesthood of all believers must be everyone a minister, everyone a pastor. Wrong. That's not what the scriptures teach. But we all, as baptized Christians, are baptized priests. We are a royal priesthood. And that royal priesthood given here is never described as preaching or distributing the sacraments. That's always reserved in the scriptures for the office of the holy ministry. So we have to ask ourselves, what is meant biblically by the holy priesthood? Or later he's going to call it the royal priesthood. And already here in context, we see what that is. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's the essence of what it means to be a baptized Christian, to be a holy priest. That is, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, who is our great high priest, according to the argument of Hebrews? Christ. You can't have a high priest without other priests. So, just as he is the living stone so also we are like living stones. Inferred here, though not explicit, just as he is the temple, so also we are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, as the ESV has it. And as he, again inferred, is the high priest, so also we are priests, royal priests, holy priests. So a holy priesthood. And our purpose then is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, spiritual sacrifice. Paul puts this, and maybe we'll have opportunity to go into this briefly in Romans 12, as offering yourselves as living sacrifices. So, spiritual sacrifices has to do with self-offering and obviously self-sacrifice. And we're going to see the way Peter spells this out when we get into his section on vocation. So for now, just kind of place that in your mind that as a baptized person, you are a holy priest given to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's really the answer to this. Well, even all our good works are tainted with sin, so how can they be acceptable or pleasing to God? Well, because they're offered through Jesus Christ, who takes away that sin and thus purifies them, making them fully acceptable in God's sight. Verse 6, he continues his argument, for it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Again, these are references to Christ. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And this is cited from Isaiah 28. Verse 7, now Peter writes, So the Honor is for you who believe. 
and what honor that is to be incorporated into Christ and what he's doing. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, and this is cited from Psalm 118. So the stone Christ that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone of the building. And then Peter goes on to quote in verse 8 from Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, this is of great interest, by the way, tangentially and by way of digression. Because do you remember the exchange with Peter where Jesus says, you are Petros, Peter, and upon this Petra rock or rock foundation, I will build my church. And the argument goes, is Peter the rock or is his confession the rock? Well, very clearly in the language even there that Jesus uses, you are Petros, a stone, and upon this Petra, rock, I will build my church. It's clear enough in the context that it's Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God, upon which Christ will build his church. But if you needed a second layer, you could simply do this. And this is kind of a fun thing to do once in a while. Ask Peter who the rock is. And then read through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, those things which Peter writes and see if Peter ever describes the rock upon which the church is built as being himself or Jesus. What do you think you'll find? Jesus. Jesus. So when you ask the rock himself, he says, no, not the Petros, the Petra. And indeed, this is exactly where he does it. So in verse 8, quoting from this uh, text out of Isaiah 8, He's referring to Christ as a stone of stumbling and a petra scandalou, a rock of offense. That's Christ. He continues, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay, here, um, is it the disobedience that they were destined to do, or the stumbling, the falling away, the destruction? The disobedience, uh, your study note kind of clarifies this in 2.8. Um, this explains that although Christ was to be a sanctuary for Judah and Israel, those who rejected him would fall in unbelief and be crushed. Unless they repent and come to faith, sin will destroy them. For example, Judas. Okay, Now, that would take us too far afield to go much more into that text. But what I want you to be seeing here is that Christ is the living stone. We are, like him, living stones. Christ is the high priest. We are, like him, a holy priesthood. That's what's being laid out here. Um, we are not those who reject Christ, disobey, and fall. And then in verse 9, we have the contrast and um, really Peter's lead in then to what it means to be members of a royal priesthood. So, and more. You are a chosen race, verse 9. So, we have a new 
race, a new kind, and that is Christian, (laughs) a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, and we are a holy nation. Who is our true king, regardless of whatever earthly government we find ourselves under? Christ. So this is what's been, this is what Peter is laying out as foundational. Now it might help us to recall that Jesus says that his kingdom is in the world but not of the world. And so we're going to find ourselves as Christians set within various nations under differing governmental systems, under differing governmental figures. But our loyalty and our fealty is ultimately to Christ. This is expressed very plainly by Peter when he's told by the authorities that he should no longer preach the gospel. He says in his defense, we must obey God and not man. So this is the first foundational teaching, is we must obey God and not man. Christ is our true king, no matter where we are. And everything else that follows is second to that. Okay, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you can certainly read in here, purchased not with gold or silver, but with the blood of Jesus. And why has God made us such that we may, that you may, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? So if we're keeping track, if we were making a bullet point list here, you have the royal priesthood described, and of course there's other nomenclature, but the royal priesthood described thus far as doing two things, spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So those thus far are the two main features of being a royal priest. New creation motif in play here because from the darkness he calls forth light. Paul uses this as a conversion language, new creation language, and this is what's, it's God who has called us out of the darkness of unbelief into his marvelous light, the light of faith. And you see that new creation language continued in 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so we have a lot of positive identifiers. Not only a royal priesthood, not only a holy priesthood, but also a spiritual house. Not only this, but a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of God's own possessions, etc., So let's pause there and see if you have any questions or comments or if everything's fairly straightforward and clear at this point. Doing okay? There's a hand. 
I was just reminded as you were as we were talking about this the stumbling block. If there's you think there's a connection with this the uh, case in Daniel where there was the Daniel I think had a, the, the the king had a dream and he said tell me what the dream is and the interpretation and he talked about a statue with a head of gold and feet of clay mm-hmm. and how a stone broke the feet of the statue and grew to fill all of mm. creation. Do you think there's a, a connection here with the stumbling block? Or am I being too... I mean, maybe in a sense. I don't know. It might. It might. I mean, it strikes me right off the bat as kind of more of a homiletical or devotional connection. I mean, it doesn't mean it's invalid. It's just creative. I don't know that that's necessarily what Daniel's after. And of course, Daniel, I, I think in that section of Daniel, he's a ways away from the thought of Isaiah in these two texts. And then the psalm, of course. I mean, I don't want to say it's completely in a different category, but it might just have some distance from the thought. Yeah, it's worth, it's worth thinking about, though. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let's go on then to uh, some other identifiers of what it means to be baptized Christians. And then we go into um, some of the vocational content, Peter's perspective. So, beloved, I urge you, this is verse 11, as sojourners and exiles, these words are hard to interpret in our context, but obviously outsiders and people who do not have a permanent home. That might be the best way of communicating the sense of these. So, again, earth is not our home. We don't belong here in any lasting sense. So, that these are important identifiers of Christians that we ought to think of ourselves as outsiders, again, as belonging to a kingdom that is in this world but not of this world, and worshiping a temple that is made without hands. To be extremely explicit, the body of Christ himself. So I urge you, Peter writes, as sojourners and exiles, I exhort you, in fact, he says, to abstain from the epithumion, the passions of the flesh. And that's a, I love that translation. It's much better than the desires of the flesh. Because I can, I can desire to have a strawberry milkshake, but that's not quite what a passion is. A passion is more like that internal thing that even after I've had the strawberry milkshake says, have another. That's the passion. The passion is the dissatisfaction and the craving and the desire to transgress simply because transgression feels good. (laughs) You might think of Augustine in his confessions with his famous uh, pear, his eating of the pear simply Simply it tasted better because he, and it was desirous because he knew it was wrong to do. That's the kind of craving of the sinful flesh that desires not only the sin for whatever pleasure it gives, but the pleasure of being rebellious, edgy, contrary to God. There's that kind of uh, 
excitement and adrenaline rush you get. So this passions of the flesh is very important. We've seen the same language in Paul. And this becomes, by the way, a central part of the way early Christians understood the battle against themselves. So we'll talk about Christians as battling against the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. But what does that mean to battle against your sinful nature? It's chiefly the identification of the passions and then the battle against these specific passions with their opposites. And the opposite of the passions are called, this early Christianity forward, are called virtues, but here in the Christian sense. Not necessarily having any tangential relationship, at least explicitly to philosophy or ethics in general, but simply in recognizing and battling the passions one is engaging in virtue. The root of which is vir, or human being, so man. So the passions are that which take us away from the creature that God created us to be. When God made Adam and Eve, did he make them good? Yes, they're included in the statement uh, that encompasses each of the days of creation, that all that he makes is good. And so man is good by nature. And then as Adam and Eve fall into sin, they become subject to their passions, to sinful passions. Again, weaker is desire. But these disordered cravings, disordered because they are in antithesis to God, yes, but also in antithesis to man as he made man to be. So we touched on this briefly, that viewed from a certain angle, we can say that being a Christian is the process of becoming human, And you can glimpse it in this way, that we were created as man, as human beings, and we fell from that and became subhuman, subject to our own passions. In a bondage of the will kind of way, no longer subject to God, but subject to ourselves. That's the selfishness and self-centeredness inherent in Luther's understanding of bondage of the will. All right? So, insofar as we baptized Christians, washed of our sins, engage and battle the passions, we progressively become more human. Which is also, in drawing closer to true humanity, is also growing closer to divinity, closer to God, because humanity is made in whose image? God. And so in becoming more like man, you also become more like God. Those two things are on the same continuum. All right, so that is uh, why Paul urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
Notice too the caveat. He doesn't throw in the caveat we so often do as Lutherans. I'm guilty of this myself of saying, well, that's impossible, so, you know, uh, at least you're forgiven. Peter's just not interested in that. Not right now. He is just going to exhort baptized Christians to consider themselves as sojourners and exiles, for that is what we are, and therefore to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, here it would be wrong for us to infer a kind of platonic idea of a separation between body and soul. That's not that's not what's in view here, but rather with flesh, Peter means the whole fallen nature, and with soul, he means the renewed human nature. So these two things are waging war against each other, and to abstain from the passions is the goal. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Interesting language. So they may so they're speaking of you as evildoers, but a change, Peter envisions a change taking place, that they come to see that you are not, in fact, evildoers, but doers of good. They see your good deeds and glorify God, just as our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5. On the day of visitation. Well, what's that day of visitation? Some people think it's the day of judgment when everything's sorted out and then they'll have no choice but to acknowledge that Christians who they held to be evildoers were, in fact, Good, and I've got no problem if that's what you think. I tend to not think that that's the case. The day of visit, visitation is specific language of episcopace and often has the connotation of ministerial visitation. For example, if you look at the end of chapter 2, this famous and beautiful statement, chapter 2, verse 25, Peter writes, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and episcopon of your soul. So you see that same language. It's the word from which we get bishop. So here very explicitly, he is the pastor and bishop of your souls. That's who the risen Christ is. But then if you read that in context, what would the day of visitation be? It would likely be the time at which Christ comes and calls them to faith. And a part of that, a tool that he uses, is in fact the good deeds and good conduct of Christians that they may glorify God, being transferred from darkness into his marvelous light, just as we have been. All right, but that's up for, uh, for some interpretive debate. Trying to gl- glimpse here at the study note to see if they have anything enlightening. Yeah, good deeds, good works, especially unexpected things, often make a strong impact on unbelievers. Matthew 5.16 is what I was referencing. Deeds that demonstrate belief are a powerful witness. And then day of visitation time when God reveals himself. Previous good experiences with Christians may make unbelievers more likely to consider what Christians teach. Yeah, I think that that's the general sense that I, in which I take this verse as well. All right, so, sojourners and exiles battling our flesh. 
not just and the passions of our flesh, not just for ourselves, but that our conduct among the Gentiles may be honorable because this, um, that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, then we're going to narrow down and get more specific before we do. I'll pause to see if you want to turn this monologue into a dialogue. Or a trialogue or whatever the case may be. I'm struck in the passage we, you were just uh, going over. What is the thing in which they slander you as evildoers? What is that thing? Is he talking about communion? So that when they speak against you as evildoers? Is that oh, the, I'm, is that I'm the sorry. Yeah, I, I guess in the NASB it says, so that in the thing in which they slander you as e- evildoers. I was wondering what the thing was. Mm. Um, I mean, wasn't there something going around that like, Christians practice cannibalism? Is that... that which they... Yeah, there was. I mean, um, Robert Louis Wilkin uh, wrote a book. It's fascinating. Uh, Christians as the Romans saw them? Yeah. Or something to that effect. Yeah. And there were, uh, yeah, there were, there were charges against the Christians that in the first place they drowned babies. Yeah. Interesting. Did the early church baptize babies? Apparently so. Um, they engaged in cannibalism. And because it a, is the body and blood of Christ. Uh-huh, it's the body and blood of Christ. Where would they get such an idea? Because everybody was saying, hey, this just symbolizes Jesus. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so cannibalism. And then the other thing, in very early Christianity, I mean, even prior to the closing of the can well, I don't know, not that the canon's closed, understand me rightly. Uh, prior to the... Prior to the writing of the Gospels, let's put it that way, that would, I think, would get the same point across, there's already a shift in uh, congregational practice. It seems to be that it, the, in the earliest days, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was done with an agape feast, a love feast. You see this in... Uh, you see some reflection of this liturgically. I mean, this kind of gets nerdy. But you see some of this in the, the construction in Luke's gospel when you do a comparative study of the gospels and you also do, you look at it from a liturgical lens as opposed to a textual lens. But where you really see this, of course, is in 1 Corinthians 11. Interesting that Luke and, and, um, and Paul, of course, we know their connection. They're sharing this tradition. But you see reflections of the agape feast in both. Okay, so the agape feast was that Holy Communion was held kind of in the midst of a potluck. It's hard for us to to understand, but church is an all-day deal, and there is a lot of teaching going on. And then the Lord's Supper is is part and parcel. So this liturgy is this great big thing. Well, a love feast. What does a pagan mind do with that? Orgies. Yeah. So Grandma Schmidt bringing her macaroni salad got a got a really bad rap amongst the ancient Romans. So, yeah, they accused us of drowning babies, uh, eating uh, human beings, and engaged in all manner of orgies, which, you know, is also kind of like the pot calling the kettle black, if you know anything about Roman culture Yeah, at the time. So, yeah, those were just some of the features. I don't know that it's that specific. I see why, I don't recall what translation you use. I see why in the Greek they take that translation. I just don't know if it's so specific. I, I don't know if you can make that argument from the text itself, that it's referring specifically to the supper or specifically to... 
baptism. So a particular thing that they're being slandered for. Yeah, I just That's don't know if it's generic. It could be taken as generic, like yeah, yeah which is kind of how the ESV takes it. By the way, this is the NASB, which is New American Standard. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I would. I would be uncomfortable pushing it to something that specific. Okay. Great. Uh, great question. Great comment. Anybody else? We're doing okay. Perfect. Let's go a little further. So then we want to be doing good deeds, not least of which because the Gentiles then will glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, this language of subject is the same language that you will find in wives being subject to husbands, children being subject to parents, and slaves being subject to masters. So we've already seen that there is some nuance there, to be sure. But it's the same word, the same root here, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Institution's completely awkward. I just don't know that there's actually a better translation. It's, a, it's really... Yeah, it's, it looks like it's, I mean, it's, it would look like it's judgment, but it's not. It's uh, like form. So institution, I guess, makes sense to every human form, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. So obviously it's talking about like a form of government. So I don't think institution's a bad translation. It's just weird. It's a weird word. So be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Again, we see for the Lord's sake. Now, in immediate context, for the Lord's sake is so that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. That's most specific. But in a Pauline and wider sense, we've seen this also for the Lord's sake as if it were rendered unto the Lord himself. So in submitting to government, we are submitting to the Lord himself. Even if that's not what Peter is specifically after, that is, in fact, a very strong biblical point, though. Um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Christ says. That doesn't mean all authority, as long as you're in four walls that have a cross somewhere on or in the building. All authority means all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Christ does, in fact, rule through the state and rule through the church ruling through these two kingdoms. Now, he rules in different ways, but it is very important for us to see that it's Christ himself ruling. Why? Because then when you have an individual or set of individuals who are ruling in antithesis to Christ, you immediately see the problem. You immediately see that they're not reigning according to how Christ would have them reign. Now, that doesn't mean the second you see that, you, it's just do as is right in your own eyes. It's not that simple. But it is important to frame it this way. So, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And again, is it a divine institution here? 
No, not strictly speaking, it's a human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. Now, this is a description that also occurs in Romans 13, and it's foundational to a biblical understanding of what government is supposed to be doing. Government is supposed to be punishing those who do evil and praising or rewarding those who do good. Who determines good and evil? God. God defines good and evil. How does he do so? Ten Commandments, even more explicitly. The Ten Commandments, or we might say the Ten Commandments written on the human heart, the natural law, arguing from St. Paul's argument in the early chapters of Romans that even if the Gentiles have no law, they are without excuse because God has written his law into their hearts, their consciences accusing them or excusing them. So we have the natural law that God writes into human hearts, and that is reflected in the Ten Commandments. Those two things are virtually identical. Does that make sense? Okay. So then this is the definition of what's good and evil. Is it up for debate? No, not really, because we're not God. All right. So now we have, from the mouth of God himself... A criteria by which we could judge whether a given government or a given uh, individual within a governmental seat is conducting himself in accord with God's word. So, Luther makes this very explicit in the large catechism in the fourth commandment where he says that governmental authority derives from the father of the family and that that governmental authority is then put in place by God to do two things. Rule in accordance with the law, that's the first thing Luther says, and second, protect the church for the salvation of souls. Those are the two tasks. When government isn't ruling according to that natural law, they are not ruling in accord with the will of God. When government is ruling in such a way that it is persecuting or impinging the church, then that government is not ruling in a godly way. And we as Christians, particularly in view here, as fathers, have a right to judge that. And that is all the more explicitly so in a democracy. Because we are electing people into an office and they are swearing to keep that office. And if they fail in their oath, it is incumbent upon us as Christians to hold them accountable. If they rule in ways that are contrary to the natural law, or rule in ways that are harmful to the church, it is incumbent upon us to hold them accountable. Does that make sense? 
So this is the basis of the argument of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that government is there to punish those who are evil and to praise or reward those who does good. When government inverts this, government falls under the judgment of God, and we as Christians have every right, and indeed, especially in this country, responsibility to hold them accountable and to speak out vociferously against this. When we look at, there's a hand over here, and as you're walking, when we look at Romans 13 and then do some work in the Magdeburg Confession of 1550, we'll look at a way in which we can grade out government, because it's not so simple as, well, they're not really doing their God-given job, so time to revolt. It's not so simple as that. There are, in fact, gradations in the way we can look at government and in the way then that God would have us respond to corruption within the governmental structure. And so anyway, all that to say, I don't mean to present this in a one-dimensional way. It's more nuanced. It's more complicated. And in due time, we'll get there and spend some time there. Yes, please. Having been in the world of education, this conversation, your, your point here is arousing within me the need to go to these um, board of education meetings that are, that are rampantly, my viewpoint, destroying God's word within the, the, uh, the schools.
How dare we let this slip away from us? Yeah, I think once you see that a, a sort of progressivist agenda, which, by the way, the way to look at this is as a religion. When you look at it as a religion, it will suddenly make sense. It has its own code of ethics by which everyone is judged. It has its own sense of sin and its own sense of offering sacrifice to make atonement for that sin. Apologize. Admit your privilege. Uh, but it really sorely lacks on forgiveness, as all pagan religions do. Because even after you've apologized, are you replatformed? No. So it's really a bloodthirsty and uh, nasty kind of Phariseeism. But it is, we, it is best for us to understand uh, kind of the cultural Marxism and progressivism as a religion, and then to understand that insofar as this takes over government and government controls the public schools, the public schools become their catechetical centers. The kind of thing that we used to have, especially as Lutherans here in America, is you would send your kids to the Lutheran school and they would be thoroughly indoctrinated in the small catechism in the Ten Commandments and the Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the sacramental gifts that God gives. Of course that's what school is. School is indoctrination. And when we hand that over to, when we hand our children over to what we used to perceive of as a neutral entity, the scales that need to fall from our eyes is that this is not, if it ever was, a neutral entity. This is a catechetical center for training kids into progressivism and into cultural Marxism. So we can talk about that more at length. And um, while, I, I, while I've got no problem doing, you know, 1 Peter 2 standalone, um, reading it in light of Romans 13 really helps, and we can do that standalone. But we also can't forget when we look at Romans 13 at Revelation 13, and Revolu- Revelation 13 would be really the other side of the coin, where in a fallen world, the devil uses governmental tyranny, the perversion of this authority. He uses church authority, so the, two, the authority of the two states, and he perverts and tyrannizes both of these. And that's what John is describing as the two beasts of Revelation. Remember the dragon and his two minions, the two beasts, and they both have these overlapping spheres of rule and ways in which they rule. So in Revelation 13, we have the stark warning that in a fallen world, fallen and perverted government is in fact a tool of the dragon himself to persecute the offspring of the woman. And that you'll remember that that's the context from Revelation 12, the great woman with the 12 stars, the crown of 12 stars, and the moon under her feet who gives birth not only to the Christ, but then to all Christians. And the devil is seeking to devour them, the offspring of the woman, that's us. And then we're introduced to his two tools, the two beasts, government, gone amok, and religion, gone amok. These are the two tools that the dragon uses to uh, 
devour us or attempt to. All right, so we can look at that too, lest you walk away and say, well, I, I don't know. The Bible just says that, you know, if, uh, if the government says you should do it, then you should do it. Uh, well, yeah, no. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, to say the least. And I'm not even, by the way, I haven't even presented the most powerful argument of all to you, because while you have 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 and Revelation 13, the most powerful argument of all? The entirety of the Old Testament. It is almost impossible to think of an instance where the people aren't rebelling against wicked and tyrannical government. What was the exodus? And the Exodus is the beating heart of the Old Testament. What were the minor prophets about? Rejecting the wicked and corrupt authority structure within the northern kingdom and southern kingdoms. That's what it's all about. What got Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Two weeks to slow the spread. 30 days you can't pray. That's what he That's what he is. 30 days you can't pray. That's what Daniel was said. And Daniel said, you know what? No. <laughs> if only he had properly known Romans 13. Yeah, no. Uh, what got Shadmach, uh, Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the oven? Disobedience. They would not worship what the state told them to worship. They would not conform or obey. So, Anyway, I could go on and on. But the scriptures are filled with such examples. The Old Testament, you can hardly, like, seriously, you can hardly open a, open a book, read through the narrative, and not find some rejection of corrupted governmental or religious authority. Again, these two beasts that John pictures so distinctly. Okay, so more on that to come. But here, then, we want to be subject For the Lord's sake, an acknowledgement that he's our true king, and for his sake and for his goals and purposes, we want to subject ourselves to every human institution. I mean, there's a sense in which we're totally free from these human institutions, but he would have us use that freedom to subject ourselves to them, whether to an emperor or to governors, um, those who punish the ones who do evil and those who reward those who do good. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I mean, and now today we hear like, oh, well, Christians, being Christian is about your faith in Jesus, not your conduct. I I mean, let me just read that again. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Like, that's what's going on in our country, is foolish people are saying, you Christians are the worst of all. And the problem is, they're right. Very frequently, Christians are as bad or worse than all. Why? Because we've been, largely because we've been so terrified of legalism and being legalistic, we've completely sold the farm. We're just the forgiveness people. And what that gets communicated then into the lives of our people is, well, live however you want. There's forgiveness on Sunday. And then how, does the, how do the Gentiles read that? <laughs> Why would we ever want to become like you? You're the cesspool of our society. You can think of the high-profile damage done, of course, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church with the priesthood. 
uh, and the pedophilia and the homosexuality. And you can think of the damage done in the mega churches who waffle and schwaffle and just simply whatever the world says, they lick their finger and go after it. Um, you know, this is not indicative of people standing up for what's right or doing what's right. There is no beacon of light. And so this would be Peter's call, I mean, to us in our age, would be, hey, get it figured out and be the salt and the light that Christ says you are and don't lose your saltiness and don't hide your light. It's there for the gospel. It's not contrary to the gospel. To live as a Christian is not contrary to grace. Rather, it helps that grace spread to the Gentiles. So this is the thing we want to lean into is our identity. Um, It is the will of God that by doing good, we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we need a good, solid generation or two of Christians who live unashamedly, unabashedly, wholesome lives and strive toward that. Okay, verse 16, live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as douloi, slaves, servants in the ESV, of God. So again, here, woven all throughout this, We subject ourselves, not because we are subject, but because we are free, and God would have us use our freedom in specifically this way, remembering that we are servants not of man, but of God. And this is a unique feature, I I think, of Peter's theology, where in 13, you see he's got his eye to every human institution, the emperor or governors, and then here sort of ends with this idea that we are servants not of man, but of God. God. Therefore, 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, so everyone obviously, then the brotherhood, Christians, fear God, honor the emperor. So I would say um, there's honor there for everyone and honor for the emperor. He does give different verbs for the brotherhood and for God, for Christians and for our God. Love the brotherhood, fear God. All right? Now, he goes into, um, so that is our relationship as Christians to government, according to Peter. And now he's going to go more specifically and narrowly into what we have defined as the uh, vocations. So, servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters, With all respect, again, I don't know why it's fear. That's the same root used for fearing God. So with all respect or with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the scoliois, to the unfair or unreasonable. I don't know why they use unjust there. It's not the language. It's fine, but it's just not the language. So um, what is he calling us to? Not only to be subject to good masters, but to be subject to bad masters. And for us, this might be employee-employer. So we would think of that as being good and gentle even to our employers when they are unfair or unreasonable. Why? The whole point is to 
shine with a light that is alien to the world so that they can glorify God in the day of visitation. All right, and then a very hard to translate. For this is a gracious thing. This is a grace-filled thing. This is a pleasing thing. I don't know any of those work. It's a tough translation. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a fantastic phrase. I It's fine with me if you pull this out of context and apply it to any of the vocations because I think it works. The point being that when mindful of God, we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Why? Who endured sorrows indeed is the man of sorrows who suffered unjustly? Christ. When we engage in this, God sees Christ and his light shining in and through us. It is a pleasing thing in his sight. And Peter even goes a step further in his rhetoric. I'll try to draw it to a close here and then we'll carry on next week. Verse 24, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Obviously the answer is no credit. But if when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious, again, same kind of translational issue. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So living our lives in the sight of God to please him, not to please man, and being willing to suffer unjustly is pleasing in his sight. Now that's enough in and of itself. But secondarily, it may have the effect that those who slander you as an evildoer will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it may, in fact, have evangelistic impact, your willingness to suffer wrongfully. But even if it doesn't, even if there's no pragmatic value, it still has value because God sees it. And God sees it as a gracious or precious thing. All right, more next week. The Lord be with you.